Thank you, Josiah, for reading the word of the Lord to us today. Uh, this has been an incredible week this week. Uh, just on a, a, a church scale, there's so much that happened. We had our annual meeting on Monday night, which was amazing. And uh, then we had uh, launched Marriage on the Rock, our marriage course on Tuesday, Alpha on Wednesday. Uh, we had a set free retreat this weekend and had about, uh, about 15 participants, roughly. Uh, and then all that happened as the whole world changed with coronavirus. And uh, that has been a day-by-day adventure, just sort of seeing how things are rolling out and changing. And uh, even my message for this Sunday morning has changed uh, because of uh, some of the things that have come along. Uh, we've been going through the story, working our way through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and last week was sort of the, the beginning of the New Testament, and we had a guest speaker, Dean Pinter, that was a, who brought a great message, but I wanted to just point out that we're now in the New Testament, and um, I had a friend who asked me a question, uh, so let me just tell you the background of my, my relationship. This, my friend, guy, fellow, you know, guy close to my age, he's new to Canada, and his, his uh, background is Muslim. And uh, he had been chatting with me for a while and um, ended up giving him a copy of the New Testament in Arabic so he could read it. And uh, so he, he read it. And then uh, it was quite a while later that he asked me this question. What's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And I thought, what a great question, right? If you've re- just read for the first time the New Testament in the Bible, what is the difference between the Old Testament that the bigger chunk of the Bible and the New Testament, the smaller chunk at the back there. And so this is, I'm going to tell you what I told you, but then I'm going to expand on it a little bit more with my message this morning. So what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I said, well, in both cases, people are separated from God because of their sin. We all, the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament have the same problem. But in the Old Testament, people were trusting God and his promises of a Messiah to come who would deal with mankind's sin problem once and for all. They had things they did to acknowledge their guilt before God. You might think of temples and sacrifices. That was all a part of it. And, um, and, and it would deal with things temporarily, but it wasn't a permanent fix. And so they would, were looking forward to this promise that God had, was going to send a Messiah who would be the permanent solution. And they were trusting in that promise and also trusting God uh, to deal with their sin problem and their separation from God problem. So I so said, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament is different in that Jesus has come. He's the Messiah that was promised. He's the fulfillment of, of what uh, Jesus or what God had promised people. And so he came. He lived a sinless life. He, he, lived, he died a sacrificial death. He rose from the dead and he became... Or he, that, all that was part of him being the permanent solution to man's sin problem and separation from God problem. So I said it this way. This is my summary. People in the Old Testament looked forward to what God had promised and what was yet to come in faith. So they were trusting in God, but they're, and they were saying that God is going to provide something in the future, and it's going to be remarkable, and we don't know all the details about it, but there's one coming that is going to be a game changer, very significant in our faith, and we're trusting in that. So they look forward in faith. They believed God, and it was credited to them as you know, the right thing, right action, and it made them right with God. 
But I said, on our side of Jesus in history, we're in the New Testament, we look backwards. Our faith goes backwards to look at Jesus and what he's done for us. And we see with greater clarity than those in the Older Testament because of who Jesus, uh, because we have the record of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. So I said, people in the Old Testament look forward in faith, we look backward in faith, but it all But anyone who becomes right with God becomes right with God because of faith in God and what he has done or what he has promised. So, why does this matter in the age of coronavirus? Why does it matter to us personally? I want to unpack that with you this morning. Um, Hebrews 11 is a great passage that uh, just talks about uh, living by faith. In fact, by faith is the most repeated phrase in the whole chapter of Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, it's talking to Jewish people who would be very familiar with the Old Testament, but it's, and it's talking about how people lived and how they lived by faith in the Old Testament, and then it leads up to uh, the game changer that was Jesus in the New Testament. So I'm just going to go to Hebrews chapter 11 and read some of it and just make some commentary. I'm going to try to move fairly fast because this is a fairly big passage of Scripture. But some people think that faith is blind, right? You just, okay, you're just trusting in something you've got really no evidence for or something that, you know, just, it's faith is blind. But the reality is, is faith is not blind. Faith sees more. Faith sees more. Right? If you're going to use the illustration of the coronavirus epidemic, faith sees the crisis, but faith sees more than the crisis. And that's uh, um, really important to us. I'll unpack that more as we go on. So faith is the confidence. This is verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So it sees more. It's, it's, there's an assurance about what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. So first thing, I just, I'm just going to make lots of statements about faith. Faith sees more than just the circumstances. Then it goes on to say, By faith we understand that the universe, universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So faith sees God's unseen hand behind what is seen. Right? And Romans chapter 1 talks about that. People look at creation, they look at trees, they look at stars, they learn more about our galaxy and our solar system, and they go, wow. Or even they dig down deep, they learn about molecules and atoms and and all sorts of different things, and they go, this is incredible. Um, Early scientists had a a phrase for this, um, some famous ones that you might know, John Newton and Galileo and some of those ones. They, the phrase that was commonly used was they were thinking God's thoughts after, after him. In other words, wow, this is how it really works? That's how God designed it. That's amazing. I didn't know that until now. And now that I've had this scientific breakthrough or understanding, I'm, for the first time, maybe one of the people on, first people on the earth to actually think what God already thought. I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. So that was what they believed, right? By faith, we understand the universe was formed at God's command. So but what is seen was not made from what was visible. There's an unseen cause to put the whole thing into motion. Uh, faith sees that God's hand is behind it all. The next one says, by faith, Abel, and I'll just skip a little bit, was commended as righteous. Let me let's pause for that. Righteous, commended as righteous. Uh, righteous, 
in this context means right with God. Righteous is right with God. Uh, so if you say, uh, you know, something's not right in my relationship with my mom or dad or my husband or wife or kids or friends or whatever, you'd say, it's just not right between us. But it could be right between you if you made it right. How do you make yourself right with God? It requires faith. Faith is what makes a person right with God. We'll unpack that a little bit more as we go. The next one says, by faith, Enoch, we'll skip a bit, and it says, was commended as one who pleased God. Wow, how did he do that? It tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So faith gives us the potential to please God, or faith pleases God. That's not just faith in anything. It's faith in God, but it pleases God. The next one, by faith Noah, when warned about things not seen, (laughs) when warned about things not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. So faith sees danger coming and prepares for it. And it's because you believe God, what he said about the thing that's coming. By faith Abraham, I'm jumping a little farther forward, um, he did not know where he was going. He talks about he was called to a place where he'd lay, later receive as his inheritance. And he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Right? So faith sees more. He said, where are you going, Abraham? I don't know. Really? You don't know where you're going, but you've got your whole family packed up. And all your animals and all your worldly goods, and you're going somewhere. What do you mean you don't know? He says, I just know that God has called me to go, and I'll find out what the final destination is as he finishes prompting me along in the journey. So, faith trusts God's leading without knowing where you're going to end up. In a way, faith is a great adventure. It's a great adventure. You have a prompting of God in your life where you're just like, you just sort of have this sense that God said, I want you to talk to that person. I want, you to, I want you to help out with this. I think you should go do that. You know, you just have this sense of God's leadership in your life, and you go, well, wh- where am I going to end up with that? What's the final outcome going to be? And you don't know. That's why it's an adventure. And so just like Abraham setting out and going, I don't know where I'm going. I just know I'm following God. Uh, Faith often leads us on an adventure. It says, for he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So faith looks forward to see what God will build. Man, I can't wait to see what God will build. I feel that way about our church. I can't wait to see what God will build. Now, if I'm out of alignment with him, if I'm not listening to him, if our, our leadership team isn't listening to him, or whatever, then we probably won't get to see. <laughs> so I need to make sure that in faith, just like Abraham, I'm following along, I'm being nudged, I'm being prompted, and that we're all doing that together. You, wow, wouldn't that be amazing for God to build what he wants to build at Hillcrest? Faith sees that and desires that. I'm looking forward to seeing what God will build. And then it says about Sarah, Abraham's wife, it says, she considered him faithful who'd made the promise. So faith trusts in God's track record of previous faithfulness. She considered him faithful. Why do you trust God, Sarah? Why do you trust God? Because uh, he's shown he's faithful. A lot of people will, will, you know, we sang that song, Great is His Faithfulness. Why do we say, I think God's going to be faithful in the future? Because we say, well, He was faithful in the past. And I've had some experiences of that personally. 
Well, I can read about it in the Bible, how he's faithful to people there, but I also, uh, when I've trusted him, I, he's come through in amazing ways, and his leadership has been good for my life. And, I, and so whatever, that stuff in the past makes me press forward in faith into the future. Then there's this big summary at the end. It says, um, all these people were still living by faith when they died. And they did not receive the things promised. Whoa, this is, wake up. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Now, we've been talking about how there's two stories in the Bible. Well, well two types of story. One is the big overarching story. We're trying to get a sense for it as we go through it, right? What is God doing through the whole thing? And then we're also recognizing that through it, there's individual stories, right? There's these individual stories. You're saying, well, 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 that's neat that God did something with Adam and Abraham and Noah and David and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But their story is a lower story. It's not the story that's the, the big story of the Bible. It's just, a, but how does it connect to the big story? And then the even more personal question is, how does my life connect to the bigger story? So you say in your life, well, it seems like these things are happening, but what is God doing? Not just what is God doing personally in my life, you can even take it further. What is God doing in his great big story that he's been unfolding through thousands of years? What, what's he doing in that story? What's he doing in that story? And how do I connect to that story? So these people were living by faith when they died. They didn't receive all the things that were promised. There's a promised Messiah they hadn't seen. It says, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. So it's an interesting thing about faith. You can actually say, you know what? I'm trusting God, not just for my life and its duration, but I'm trusting God for things that are connected to my life as I connect to the greater story of God that will go beyond my own life. And that starts showing up in some of the faith responses later on. I'm going to read you about uh, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those guys. It's neat. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, it says, by faith. He reasoned that. So faith believes that God can do things you've never seen him do before. Abraham didn't know that from his past experience. But he thought, wow, this is God. He could probably even do that. And so he believed. Um, the thing was, who was he hoping he would raise from the dead? His one and only son. His heir. The one who would, God had made a promise. He's going to bless the whole world through the Israelites. And there weren't going to be, or I mean the Jewish people, Abraham's descendants. There wasn't going to be Israelites and there wasn't going to be Jewish people if Isaac didn't live. And then there's this crazy story. And, we, and very early on, it's the second chart there, the brown poster with the knife I will provide, it says. Uh, we talked about that story and how he was called to sacrifice his own son. And people don't like that story because they think, well, does God want human sacrifice? You read the rest of the Bible and you find out, no, God detests human sacrifice. And every one of us who are looking backwards into the story knows that if we read it. But Abraham, looking forward in faith, didn't know that. He didn't know that God doesn't demand human sacrifice. That actually God's plan was always that he himself would make the sacrifice. That God would make the sacrifice. 
But Abraham doesn't know it, so it functions as a very effective test. If you had a thought come to your mind, I should sacrifice one of my children as a human sacrifice, and you came to me and said, do you think I've got, I'm hearing from God? I'd say, no, you're not hearing from God, because it completely contradicts the teaching of Scripture. You are not hearing from God. Just make that really, really clear, just in case. You run into anybody who says, I'm thinking maybe I'm called to sacrifice my child. No, 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 you are not called to. God hates that. He detests that. But Abraham, when he lived in that era, when child sacrifice was part of the worship of the idols of his era, does he know everything about the God that he's following? No. So it functions as an actual workable test in his life for God to say, I want you to sacrifice your son. Or, uh, and then for Abraham to go, oh, maybe the God that I serve desires this just like all the other idols around here. And of course... When he goes to follow through, God himself stops him and says, this isn't what I desire. This isn't what I want. It's a confusing story in some ways, but it's a test. That's the helpful thing. It's a test. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a desire in God's heart, but it's a test. But what did he reason? This is what he's thinking when he's going into it. He goes, I, if I kill my son, God will raise him back up. That's not what happened. God prevented him from killing his son. But that's what he reasoned. He said, well, God must be able to do these things too, right? And that faith, believing that God can do more than you've ever seen before, um, was part of his story. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. This is just a simple one. Blessing your children. Faith calls you to see generationally, like not just, not just to the end of your life, but further. Like what about my kids and what about my grandkids? Or if you don't have kids or grandkids, what about the next generations? What about, the gen what about millennials? What about Gen Z? What about Gen etc. and the generations to come? Faith speaks blessing into those futures because it, it, it sees further. He's a future for children and the generations to come. And then Jacob, very similarly, when he was dying, he blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So faith gives hope and confidence in the face of death. And not just in the New Testament, when Jesus is revealed, but also in the Old Testament did. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. Faith really changes how you view your kids, I tell you. It really does. You say, oh, wow, this kid's unique. Each of ours are. I don't know about yours, but they're unique. What would it be like if they were fully alive in their walk with God and serving him? That's amazing, right? Moses came along even though there was very a special destiny for him, it wasn't the parents who were just like, eh, we got other kids. One more. No. Faith sees the potential in others. How about this one with Moses? He chose to be mistreated. Oh, by faith, when Moses, when he, grew, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated, mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead. Remember, faith sees more. He was looking ahead to his reward. 
Faith helps us prioritize God's greater reward than some short-sighted reward. Now, his temptation would have been great. All the pleasures of the greatest nation of his era, Egypt. I mean, this was dynastic Egypt, the dynasties of Egypt. And you are a royal son of the household of Pharaoh. There's no pleasure in the world that can't be yours. Or you can live on the backside of a desert for 40 years all alone. Introverts, that sounds attractive. But for some of us, no. And then after that, spend the next 40 years leading a million crybabies across the desert. You know, if you've ever been on a family trip with your kids and you've only got one kid that's whining, it just can ruin the whole thing. Well, imagine a million. How soon do you want that trip to end? Well, Moses made a choice. And he shunned the greatest pleasures you could have at that time in the world. And he embraced God's uh, plan for him, which was hardship, isolation, uh, and then wishing you were isolated afterwards when you were surrounded by people that were so disobedient and so complainy and whiny. But he embraced that. Why? Because faith sees more. Faith sees that there's a reward even beyond this life, and Moses, or, yeah, Moses saw that, and he embraced it. Let me come to the summary at the end. It says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Wow, what a triumphant life that they describe these people of faith have. But then it flips the script. Just when you think, oh, if I have faith, everything's going to go really well for me. And then these verses suddenly show up. There were others. Oh, tell us about the others. Who were tortured. They were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. I don't fully understand all of that, but it sounds bad. They faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. So just when you think faith means an overcoming, always, you know, maybe a life of ease. We know that we've come to realize faith doesn't guarantee a life of ease. It doesn't guarantee that you'll receive justice in this life. It doesn't guarantee that you'll have happy circumstances in this life. You might say, well, maybe those are the guys who didn't have very much faith. But the next line tells us that's not true. It says, these were all commended for their faith. They were all commended for their faith. So the ones who won battles and received their, their loved ones back from the dead were commended for their faith. And the ones who were sawn in two and imprisoned and lived destitute, poverty-stricken lives in caves were commended for their faith. They all pleased God, even those who had a difficult end. 
Yet none of them received, this is what, how it says it again, none of them received what they'd been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now made perfect, uh, I think it's not the best phrase, it's really made complete, that's what it's talking, perfection is, is more completion or finishing the story. Their story would only find its completion in connection with us. Well, how do, how, what's the connection? What do we share with them that makes their story complete? Jesus. We share Jesus with them. If faith helps you see more, then Jesus helps you see even, even more. And so I love that little poster at the very end where it sees like the, the light is dawning on the planet. It's the blue one at the very back there. You can see it on there too. And I love it because it's just sort of like the New Testament is the dawning of what the Old Testament has been aching for. As people have gone through all the, they've gone through many rituals and things that keep reminding them their sin has separated them from God. They're guilty before God. And that guilt and sin must be atoned for. And then Jesus arrives, the long-awaited Messiah, and he begins his, his work on the earth, his, his life, uh, and people get the best picture they've ever had of who God is. I mean, if, if God had a Facebook page, Jesus would be the profile picture. Right? So, you, oh, who is this? Who's messaging me today? I want to just click that picture and, wow. Now I understand who's messaging me. Well, Jesus was the closest you could ever come to sort of getting a... So, so Lots of people in the Old Testament understood many things about God. But when Jesus comes, we understand so much more. The picture gets way clearer. I'm just going to give you a few things we, we understand just from Jesus' early days. And that's what we've been reading this week if you've been reading in the story. You understand Jesus' love for others, which is Jesus is God. So God's love for others. You begin to understand this. I was, I've been emailing back and forth with um, a lady who's been just taking some basic first steps in her sort of journey towards faith. And this is what she said to me recently, because I, I think either I or someone else, I can't remember who got her started, reading the book of John, which is all about the stories of Jesus. And she said, I just started reading John. It's really interesting. I like the history of it and how kind Jesus is. How kind Jesus is. Well, if you read the book of John, or actually if you read any of probably the four accounts of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that. It's like, wow, he's really loving. If you did the reading this week, you would have read about Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at the well, and really you're not supposed to, there wasn't a lot of, like, you know, men talking to women wasn't really kosher back then, and also Jews talking to Samaritans, that was for a bit, like, that was really socially not the thing to do. And Jesus cut through all of that to have a, a conversation with him, with her. And not only does he uh, engage with her, and she's shocked by it, and Jesus' disciples are shocked by it. Thankfully, they say nothing. They zip their lips at the right time. But he goes, it's even a step further. Because she's not just someone from a different ethnicity, and in that time there was a lot of racism and hostility there that you didn't cross that boundary. She's also someone who's made some really bad moral choices and that most people in the community would agree uh, put her as definitely second-rate or worse. And Jesus engages her like none of that matters, which is not her life experience. And Jesus is changing the script. 
And Jesus is showing his kindness and his love. Jesus loved those who were not from his ethnic background and who had made many questionable moral choices. The Samaritan woman discovered that Jesus' knowledge of her sin didn't make her, him shun her. I think this is our greatest fear. You say, well, that sounds archaic, people with all that racism back then. We're a lot better today. But, you know, the reality is we all have the same fear that the Samaritan woman would have. And that's, if people know me, would they reject me? How much can I reveal of who I am? How much of my secrets do I have to keep in the closet in order to be accepted? It's that even possible to be fully known and fully loved. And the answer we find in the story of Jesus is yes. That fully known, fully loved experience is available through relationship with God. You might have other good friends who do decently well at this. Don't struggle as much as others, but I want to tell you, the purest form of it you'll ever experience is in relationship with God. So our greatest fear, if people really knew who I was, they wouldn't accept me. They wouldn't have anything to do with me. It evaporated for her when she spent time with Jesus. Jesus showed us that God does completely know us and yet still loves us. They had a nickname for Jesus back then, which wasn't complimentary. In that culture, they called him a friend of sinners. So basically, those people that are the losers that we don't associate with, they should have basically just said, you're a friend of losers. And uh, Jesus didn't say, no, 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 I'm, I'm with you guys. No, I'm cool. I just was, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, they're not my real friend. No, Jesus didn't do any of that. Jesus was just like, I've come to help the sick. They're the ones who need a doctor. The thing was, the people who were criticizing, they needed a doctor too. They just didn't realize that they needed a doctor for their souls, for their spirit, for their lives. So, the, so when Jesus shows up, we see more. We see how much God loves people. We see Jesus serving others. This is a shocker for me every time I think about it. He took on the nature of a servant, it says in Philippians. And we also see that he implemented something that's become very popular now to talk about in leadership circles, servant leadership. You can read in secular leadership books today where people say, yeah, it's about servant leadership. You're the CEO, but get down with the common man and on the, on the assembly line and really you know, connect with them and care, and that really matters. And who modeled that first? It was Jesus. He said to his disciples, hey, look, there's no servant around to wash our dusty feet, so I will. And everybody's like, no, 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 you're the, you're the leader. You're the boss. That's not how it works around here. And he says, this is how it works in my kingdom. If you're going to be a leader in my kingdom, you need to be a servant leader. You need to be willing to wash dusty feet. You need to be willing to do dirty jobs to serve other people. If you want to lead in my kingdom, this is how it works. And so we're going, whoa, that doesn't make much sense to us. God, the creator, the one with all power and authority, serving man. No wonder Peter said, no, 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 don't do this. Don't do this. He just felt like this was totally a flip of the script that he couldn't handle. But then Jesus insisted. So we find that Jesus, God loves us. Uh, God is interested in serving man when it doesn't make any sense for us. Uh, Jesus came. He did that. And he was also an example for us and how we should live. And then Jesus' resurrection. Oh, man. I'm just picking a few of the highlights. Jesus' resurrection. I mean, that's not even in this week's reading, but you can't ignore what that means for us. Uh, you know what YOLO is? You know, you only live once. 
It should be yolt. You only live twice. <laughs> Jesus didn't only live once. He died and then he rose from the grave. And that changes the game. If Jesus can beat death, so can we. A whole new possibility opens up. And it totally changes how you see this life. It depends on how deeply it sinks into your understanding and into your heart. But it totally changes how you view this life. If, lo- if YOLO is wrong, what changes? Well, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear death. Well, you might fear the process of death because it, be, it can be different ways you die, right? When I was a kid, that was one of my biggest fears was the fear of death. And I'd watched a lot of TV shows and I knew enough to know that everyone dies by a gunshot wound. I never saw anyone die any other way on TV. I just go, a bullet's coming for me someday. And so when I, as a child, I was six years old when I just realized I needed Jesus in my life. And as a simple child, just simply saying, uh, I'm giving my life to you. One of the big early changes, I've had so many changes, and I keep, I keep experiencing new ones as I walk with Jesus, but some, one of the early changes I experienced was my fear of death went away. Not that I didn't think, I, not that I wasn't still skittish about gunshot. I still was worried about that. But the outcome after, and I was calmed by the fact that while I would suffer and it would be painful and it would be, you know, all this, but then it would be glorious. Then I'd be with Jesus. I remember in high school walking in a, in a, a, Edmund, a part of Edmonton that I thought was sketchy as a, as a young teenager. I was probably 14 or 15. And I, I was there with, uh, on a school trip, and I said to my school principal who happened to be with us, I said, uh, you know, whoa, we, we, should we, we be walking down this street? I mean, look around. This, thing's, this seems sketchy. And he's like, no, I think it's fine. And I said, are you really thinking this through? What if we die? You know, a trump card, go right to it, right? And he was just like, oh. He goes, wow. So um, if you die, what's that? I'm like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And I said, well, then what happens after you die? Now, he was a a believer, and he knew I was too. And then I was like, oh, well, I guess you go to be with God. And he says, what's that? I guess that's the best thing that could happen. changes the script. The deeper it goes, the more it changes how you view your life. So for the believer, death is not losing out in a big way. You hear the Apostle Paul, just his thoughts on this. He said, I eagerly expect, he didn't know whether he was going to live or die totally, and so he's writing in Philippians 1, 20 to 24. He says, I eagerly accept, expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that Now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in my body and stay. I've thought about this lots, and this is growing in me, and I pray that it'll keep growing in me. If... I think I'm supposed to stick around. I have a wife and I have kids. I'm, I play a role in this church. I think I'm supposed to be alive for a while. That's my thought. But if I die today, well, okay. 
faith says, that's okay. Not okay. I mean, for me, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I, I go from this adventure, which is, I think is pretty great, to a much greater adventure, to a much greater experience. Can, God, can I trust God that he'll provide for my wife and my kids and whatever hole I leave here will be filled well? And Yeah. He's a great leader. He's a great provider. Death loses it, and that's what they said in the New Testament. They said, death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? I mean, the process of death, yes. The pain, the difficult, yes. But death, where is your sting for the believer? Because you know that to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Jesus' resurrection changes the game. It's not, it's, uh, Death is not just the end of whatever you're suffering, but it's the start of eternal life with God. And then just the reality of Jesus laying down his life. Jesus said, you'll find your life when you lay it down. Uh, Matthew 16, 25. For, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. For whoever loses their life will find it. So why am I sharing all this stuff? Sorry, I just got a sniffle here. I think I'm fine. Don't worry. <laughs> Two meters, we're all good. All right. I was reading an article this week, what the early church can teach us about the coronavirus. And it just made me think of the faith of the Old Testament. This is God. He's been faithful. We can trust him. He's got something good for us in the future. And then us who live in the era of the New Testament where Jesus has already come. How does it change how we live? How does it change? And let me just read you this article. I think this is a great answer to how. The early church was no stranger to plagues, epidemics, and mass hysteria. In fact, according to both Christian and also non-Christian accounts, one of the main catalysts for the church's explosive growth in its early years was how Christians navigated disease, suffering, and death. The church's posture made such a strong impression on Roman society that even pagan Roman emperors complained to pagan priests about their declining numbers, telling them to step up their game. So what did Christians do differently that shook the Roman Empire? And what can the early church teach us in light of the coronavirus? In A.D. 249 to 262, Western civilization was devastated by one of the deadliest pandemics in its history— Though the exact cause of the plague is uncertain, the city of Rome was said to have lost an estimated 5,000 people a day at the height of its outbreak. And remember, the population base was a lot lower than what we have today. 5,000 people a day. One eyewitness, Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria, wrote that although the plague did not discriminate between Christians and non-Christians, it seemed like its full impact fell on the non-Christians. Having noted the difference between Christian and non-Christian responses to the plague, he says of the non-Christians in Alexandria. So these are people who are not followers of Jesus. He said, at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Now, Christian accounts confirm this sentiment. A century later, the Emperor Julian, or sorry, non-Christian accounts 
confirmed this sentiment. A century later, the Emperor Julian attempted to curb the growth of Christianity after the plague by leading a campaign to establish, establish pagan charities that mirrored the work of Christians in his realm. In AD 362, in a letter, Julian complained that the Hellenists needed to match the Christians in virtue. Blaming the recent growth of Christianity on their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the, I like how he says it, the pretended holiness of their lives. Clearly they're pretending. They're not really holy. Elsewhere he wrote, for it is a disgrace that the impious Galileans, that's how he's referring to the Christians. Again, he doesn't like them. It's a disgrace that the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Though Julian questioned the motives of Christians, his embarrassment over Hellenic charities confirms pagan efforts fell massively short of Christian standards of serving the sick and the poor, especially during epidemics. According to Rodney Stark in The Rise of Christianity, his book, this is because... Quote, for all that Julian urged pagan priests to match these Christian practices, there was little or no response because there was no doctrinal basis or traditional practices for them to build on. What are those actions built on? They're all done by faith. They're all based on faith. They're all based on believing and trusting in God and in Jesus and what he's done for us. If the non-Christian response to the plague was characterized by self-protection, self-preservation, and avoiding the sick at all costs, the Christian response was just the opposite. According to Dionysius, the plague served as a schooling and testing for Christians. A schooling and testing for Christians. In a detailed description of how Christians responded to the plague in Alexandria, he writes how the best among them honorably served the sick until they themselves caught the disease and died. This is what he wrote. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Similarly, in Pontius' biography of Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, he writes how the bishop reminded believers to serve not only their fellow Christians, but also non-Christians during the plague. There's nothing remarkable, this is the quote, there's nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attentions of love, but that one might become perfect, again, that's complete or, or mature in their faith, but that one might become like that, who should do something more? We should do something more than heathen men or publicans. One who overcomes... Oh, this is hard to read. It's written funny. One who overcoming evil with good and practicing a merciful kindness like that of God should love his enemies as well. Thus the good was done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. And the impact of this service was twofold. Christian sacrifice for their fellow believers stunned the unbelieving world as they witnessed communal love like they'd never seen it. And number two, Christian sacrifice for non-Christians resulted in the early church experiencing exponential growth as non-Christian survivors who benefited from the care of their Christian neighbors converted to the faith en masse in great numbers.
So as we continue to wrestle with how to respond to the coronavirus, notice how non-Christians in the Roman Empire emphasized self-preservation, while the early church emphasized fearless, sacrificial service. Whereas non-Christians fled from epidemics and abandoned their sick loved ones as they feared the unknown, Christians marched into epidemics and served both Christians and also non-Christians, seeing their own suffering as an opportunity to spread the gospel and model Christ-like love. So how might we put that posture into practice in the face of COVID-19 or the coronavirus? How can we set ourselves apart from the world and how we respond from the growing epidemic? Perhaps we begin by resisting the fear that's leading to panic in various sectors of society. Instead, of, instead, we should model peace and calm in the midst of rising anxiety all around us. Now, I mean, there's a real threat here. Let's not sugarcoat it. And you might feel anxiety. And I think one of the best antidotes for that is to reflect on the truth of God's word. And uh, I, I love one of, the, one of the guys I was looking at his website. He made an Apple playlist, also a Spotify playlist, called Songs of Comfort for Anxious Souls. <laughs> so you might want to write that down. I looked it up. It's like 75 songs long, and it's all uh, Christian either hymns or awesome choruses. And it's just like again and again just to comfort you. So you want something on repeat over the next, if you get quarantined for two weeks? Songs of Comfort... For, the anxious, for anxious souls, just look it up on your Apple playlist or Spotify and uh, let it minister to you. Perhaps one of the choices we make, and I don't know if this is as big a thing anymore or even in Moose Jaw, but perhaps we choose to patronize local Asian American restaurants and businesses. We do know that in the world there's been people who've been holding back. They've been fearful and stereotyping. and So maybe just order Chinese food. I love that. I can totally endorse. I'm excited about that one, just following through on that. You know, thank you, Pastor, for encouraging my love of wonton soup. All right. We also might seek to sacrificially serve our neighbors by prudently abiding by the advice of medical professionals to help slow the spread of the disease. You know, faith does not ignore the crisis. Faith sees more than the crisis. It sees a God but it doesn't ignore the crisis. And one of the ways that we are trying to be faithful and faith-filled and good citizens in our community is we're paying attention every day to what the Saskatchewan Health Authority says. So that if they say, this is the best way we can work together to avert a health crisis in our community, we go, okay, we're going to implement that. And that's a proper Christian response. Faith doesn't mean, hey, I'm immune, Right? Faith says, we're going to do what needs to be done. Also, we should prioritize the health of the, oh yeah, so prioritize the health of the wider community, especially the most vulnerable citizens, by exercising an abundance of caution without perpetuating fear, hysteria, or misinformation. All right. So how can I walk in this kind of faith that pleases God and offers fearless, sacrificial service? To the world. I'm worried when I read a list of things to do that people say, oh, I'm going to just go do that. How the early church did it was not that they had pastors who gave them a list of to-dos. You ought to do this if you're a Christian. It flowed out of something more powerful than that. It 
flowed out of faith in God. It flowed out of belief in God. And your actions, your, your responding with faith and not fear is going to flow out of how much you trust God and how deep that's gone in your life. I love that the gospel, the, the good news about Jesus, you know, Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, the king has come near, Jesus. In other words, God really wants to get close to you. And he wants to lead your life like a king would lead his subjects. Oh, it's really exciting stuff. But you know what? I love that over the course of my life, there's been more and more sort of aha moments where I'm like, oh, this gospel is more powerful than I thought. It actually affects more areas of my life than I thought. It transforms more of my thinking than I thought. And as a result of my faith growing and my belief in Christ growing, it changes my actions. It changes my outcomes. So I know it's 12, but I have something really important to end with here. So please be patient. I got thinking about it. I said, you know what? Who knows what the next day is going to be like? Every day, this thing's changing. Is it going to be really, really bad? Or is it going to just be handled really professionally and well, and it won't be a big health concern in our, in our province or in our city? I don't know the answers to that. I don't really know the answer to that. So erring on the side of caution, if it's going to be bad, I want to end with this. John 3, 16 to 18. Just read these verses to you. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, and whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So I'm just going to work backwards through, through these verses and what they mean. And I think it's the most important thing I'm saying this morning, potentially. For so first it talks about being condemned. But it's not that God is coming to condemn the world. It's that our sin has condemned us. Remember, I started by saying we have a sin problem and we have a separation problem. And they're one and the same. Our sin has separated us from God. And that is not how you want to enter the next life. You don't want to take something that for right now is temporary and make it permanent. You do not want to be separated from God in eternity. And because I don't know the outcomes of the next number of days, and I don't know if there'll be more funerals than normal, I don't know that. I'm just erring on the side of caution. I'm hoping for a really positive outcome in all these different ways. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I think you should pray for. Pray that our city would be blessed, that people would be safe, that people don't get coronavirus, or if they do, they come out healthy. There's lots of medical stuff. Pray for all the good outcomes. But if I'm going to do a funeral, I don't want to be standing at a funeral and say, I didn't tell them. I wasn't clear. They didn't know. They didn't know how to be right with God. And I think this is a great, these are great verses. They really show us our condition. They show us that sin can, we're condemned before God. Sin separates us from God. The good thing is God wants to separate you from sin. And one of the two outcomes is going to happen. 
Either sin will separate you from God or God will separate you from your sin. God saw us in our sinful state. He saw that we hadn't responded well to his love for us, to his offer of relationship. We, we'd spurned him in so many different ways. He saw that, that we're born uh, with a natural proclivity to be selfish. I have kids, so I know this is true. So just trust me on that one. He saw us and had mercy on us. And it's not like he just said, well, now, here's a path. Do this, 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 and you'll please God. No, he just said, trust me. It's faith that pleases God. Trust me. Put your faith in me. I'm going to do what's necessary for the sin, and the, the sin problem and the separation problem to go away. I remember hearing a guy explain. He was talking to th- was three different religions. They were all around a table, and, the, and they, they were talking. And the, the the one guy said, "I think our religions are mostly the same, maybe slightly different in some of the minor matters." And uh, and so then the Christian in the center said, "So do you see us all climbing the same mountain from three different directions, trying to get to the top?" And the, the other two guys said, "Yes, exactly how we see it." And he said, "In that case." We're not the same at all because I see it this way. Man is unable to climb the mountain of righteousness or good action or whatever to please God. Our sin problem runs very deep. But God in his mercy came from the top of the mountain down to where we were to save us. So God saw us and condemned by our own sin. And now he didn't come to condemn, as it says. He isn't here to keep more condemnation. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So God doesn't come in his posture to you and say, you failed, you're guilty, and I'm going to throw more guilt and more shame and more condemnation onto you. He says, no, I'm here to save you. I'm here that you'd be separated from the penalty of your sin. And that you'd be united with me. And that brings us back to the most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world. Remember Jesus showed us how, much, how kind he was. How much he loved. How he would go through any barrier to reach somebody. He'll do that for you too. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 